There we go. Amen. Man, welcome in. Man, we are so thankful to have you at our 1030 service. As I said before, uh, my name is Alan. I'm the campus pastor here, and Will is our amazing worship pastor. Uh, and So we are glad to have you with us. Uh, man, I also want to say thank you. Man, we had so many that came and attended, but so many that served in our food trucks and fireworks uh, event last week. Uh, to say the least, we made memories, uh, very wet memories. Uh, we, uh, it was in a monsoon, and it just was not letting up. So the good news is, if you hadn't seen our post on social media, we are planning an alternate event. We don't know if it's going to be this year, like we're going to do in a couple months, which is one of the ideas, or if we're going to just punt and have the, the fireworks for next year. We're not real sure, but the fireworks are okay. Uh, which is a, a good thing, uh, and so, but they all have to be rewired and everything, so we couldn't turn it around by Wednesday. So there was some confusion there, uh, but we appreciate you guys being flexible. Some of you that risked life and limb uh, to take down metal staked uh, uh, tents in the middle of a lightning storm, uh, all the stuff that you did, we really appreciate it. Uh, and so anyway, like I said, we made some memories. It was a great event, man, a huge turnout of folks. Uh, and it just seems to get bigger and bigger each year. So that is a really awesome way for us to minister and to have connections with our uh with our community. Uh, we've got those uh, registration cards that we'll be able to follow up with and give anybody information uh, they want about our church and, and those sorts of things. So we're excited about that. Uh, our VBS and all that, our men got together yesterday and we uh, went kayaking and canoeing down the Buffalo River in Waynesboro. That was a lot of fun. Uh, no one got seriously injured. Uh, I found out my seven-year-old has zero fear. He jumped off like a 40 foot cliff uh, into the water. That was crazy. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. Uh, I'll tell you, the women, uh, we, they are going tubing next week. So they're going to be floating down the river. Our guys had so much fun. We're just going to show up to that event, I think, too. Uh, just show up and hang out. And I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But the ladies are doing that this weekend. So make sure you sign up for that. You'll get see more information about that later. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're in our final part of our three-part series in the book of Mark, and we are in the second of five of this last section talking about Jesus's ministry to the nation. Jesus has ministered to, his, to the Jewish multitudes, he has ministered to his disciples, and now in Mark he has turned his focus to the nations, right? This is how the gospel gets to us. This is good news for the Jews, but God had intended before the foundation of the world for it to be good news for all people, right? And so, and so this is where the gospel comes to the nation. And so we see that in the last chapters of the book of Mark. Now, Mark 11, the beginning of it, we talked about Jesus making some pretty significant claims that Mark 11 kind of acts as a resume of sorts for Jesus to be the prophet, priest, and king, right? To be the Messiah. There were messianic credentials in the, found in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills in the New Testament, right? This is what we see uh, in Mark chapter 11. And so Jesus makes a lot of authority claims. But we can say 
and do, we can say just about anything, right? I can convince you, I may, may not be able to convince you, I can say that I am a highly tuned athletic machine at the peak of his physical fitness. But then you see me at a dinner table and you realize this is not the case, right? And so I can make a lot of claims. I remember in, in, in grade school, there was a, a student that he was the prototypical one-upper. Do you know what I mean when I say the one-up guy? Like, he, he's the guy that if you walk to school, he walked to school in the snow carrying his little brother uphill both ways, right? Like, that was who this guy was. And so we started telling stories, and we realized, like, man, this guy's done everything. And then we realized, well, there's no possible way he could have done some of the things that we've done. There's no way. So we started, like, making up stories, like crazy things that we had done that got a little more elaborate as time went on. And eventually we had to break it to them. Hey, man, we've been lying about this for the last three months. Like, we know that you haven't done all this. Like, you can make any claim that you want to. But Jesus is in Mark, the end of Mark 11 into Mark chapter 12, is going to begin defending the claims that he makes because his claims to authority are challenged. To, like today, Jesus then was a polarizing figure. Not everybody was aboard the Jesus bandwagon, right? In fact, there was a ton of people, people of great influence and power that were totally against what Jesus, the claims that Jesus was making. There's no way he can be the Messiah because he doesn't look like the way that we want the Messiah to look. And so there were plenty of opponents that would challenge Jesus. And so we see that in Mark chapter 11, right? Talk is cheap. But Jesus is about to be challenged and the claims that he makes about who he is, which is the foundation of everything that we are as children of God, right? Everything that we have is born on the, the fact of the legitimacy of the claims that Jesus makes to be Messiah, to be the Son of God. And so we're going to see him begin to respond to these challenges. In fact, they're more than challenges, it would probably be better to see them as traps. These were intentional snares that the, in, that the enemies of Christ would put in place in order to delegitimize the claims that he made. Now, when I moved to Elkmont, uh, I experienced something that I had never experienced before. I have lived by cow pastures. And so I know what it's like to have a house filled with flies, okay? Uh, it's one of the things that happens. You live by a cow pasture, you have a house full of flies. Well, in Elmont, you have something entirely different. Uh, there are fields that surround the entirety of the rural village. Uh, agricultural fields that get cut almost the exact same time, like almost simultaneously people are cutting these fields. And there is a mass exodus of rodents, that happens when you live in Elkmont and they start cutting the fields that all of those rodents have no longer have been displaced in their homes in the fields. They decide to set up residence in your home, right? And I'll never forget like the night it happened, I thought we were like in some movie or something, right? I mean, we're going to bed and there's like, they're, they're having mouse races. It's not the occasional mouse. It's like mouse races, like Ben-Hur going on in rodent form on like between the floors of our home. We had to do something. 
So the first thing we did is we bought one of those little dome things. Now, let me just tell you, this is not an endorsement for Tomcat or anything, all right? Now, I'm receiving no benefits from this, no kickbacks. But whoever makes those little dome things, don't buy them. Not for Elkmont mice. If you got mice that are that big, sure, buy them away. I'm sure it'll work great. Elkmont mice have been feasting, all right? And in preparation of invading your home, they have been feasting. Okay, and so we realized, well, <laughs> these things are not going to do the trick. So we went to the old-fashioned snap ones. That was fine until, like, my daughter is weeping over a rodent that has, like, lost limbs. And they're, like, limping away from me, like, gosh, this is terrible. Like, so I don't want to give my kid a complex. And so what we determined, the best thing for us were these right here, glue traps, Anybody? By the way, if you've ever gotten this on any garment or finger, or any, it, it's the worst, right? And we put these out, and it was okay. Like, we had millions of mice in our home, we felt like. And we were catching one every now and then, and then a friend told us. Are you ready? Pro tip. You ready? Put a little bit of peanut butter in the middle of one of these traps, and son, you are covered. Uh, we... We're throwing away like garbage bags full of, of mice on these things. They were really, really affected. Our goal was to find the most effective way to lay these traps, to get these traps in order to catch these rodents because we had to do life on our terms, right? We, we, couldn't, we couldn't live in the way that we were living at the time. In Mark chapter 11 and 12, Jesus' enemies lay traps, Traps to delegitimize who Jesus is. If they can delegitimize Christ, if they can get him in a trap, if they can prove to the world that he's not who he says he is, who he has claimed in Mark, the earlier part of Mark 11 to be, then they are golden. And what we find is those traps are very similar to the traps that are laid for his followers today. The same traps that can ensnare his followers even today. The first trap we see is the trap of truth. Mark chapter 11. Mark 11 beginning in verse 22. Listen what it says. They challenged Jesus' authority. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Asking about Jesus' authority. The, the quickest way to delegitimize him is to undermine his authority, right? He doesn't have the authority to make the claims that he's making. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then do you not, did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for, all, all, uh, for they all held John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. A nice political common ground answer. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. Father, make clear your word today. May we stand on it as truth. May we be undistracted by, by treasure and the 
triv- the trivial things that we can make our life about at times. God, may you renew our hearts and minds in your word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, chief priests and the elders, right? They came in and they asked Jesus, who gave you this authority? Now, what they were referencing was something called the tradition of the elders. And in the tradition of the elders, there was a clear path in which you as a person were able to advance in your biblical knowledge in order to get to the status of a rabbi with, in Hebrew, simika, which literally means authority. In order to, to advance yourself to the place where you would become a rabbi of authority, you had to first memorize the entire books of the law, all of the prophecies. You would have to memorize even commentaries of rabbis of days gone by. Well, you know, Rabbi Gamaliel says this. You would memorize what they would say, their commentary on that. And then you would have to sit under the tutelage of another sitting rabbi with authority until they saw fit to give you the title of rabbi with authority. Your authority would have to be handed down to you from another rabbi. Well, when they saw Jesus, they saw a man circumventing this whole process. Right? Who is it that gave you? Because I know this rabbi and this rabbi and this rabbi. There was not many of them in the day, obviously, because of all that it entailed. There were not many of them. None of them had given Jesus authority. And so of what authority are you teaching? And Jesus poses a question back to them, right? He says, who did John, who, did, who gave John authority? Yet you still came and listened to him. Yet you still, um, there, were, there were still things, people followed him. Whose authority did he come from, right? The religious rulers in Israel's history, while entrusted with the duties of God, refused to legitimize those whose authority was given by God. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? Those whose duty it was to dispense ritual, spiritual happenings in the country, in the nation, missed the very people communicating God's word in that day. Jesus says, and it ain't just John And it's not just me that you've delegitimized, that you have refused to listen to. Listen to Mark 12, verse 1. Jesus tells them a parable. You have obviously derived your truth from another source because listen to how you have treated every prophet of God. He tells them a story about their history, Mark 12, 1 through 9. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country, right? The parable is, the parable of the vineyard is synonymous with the nation of Israel, right? They were used synonymously. It was a symbol that was used often in the Old Testament. So when he talked about a vineyard, they knew he was talking about Israel. He said it was not just a vineyard, but a perfectly tended, a perfectly uh, protected, and a perfectly provided for vineyard. It had every tool necessary to succeed. 
Listen to what it says in verse 2. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants that were watching the vineyard to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. It's getting worse. And he sent yet another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Read Hebrews chapter 11. The faith hall of fame of people with messages from God over and over and over entrusted to the vineyard, entrusted to speak God's word from the owner, and time and time again, those who were in religious authority treated them shamefully, killed them, and rejected them in every way. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is their heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, what person in their right mind would arrive at that conclusion? If the owner of a piece of land had entrusted me to land and I have beaten all of his servants and killed some of his servants and then he sends his son and I kill him, would eventually say, okay, this is so much trouble, here, have the land. Well, no one would do that. That person would be crazy. And that's the point. That's the point of the parable. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. What we see in this shift, right? Jesus is preaching of this inbreaking kingdom that is not just for the Jewish people, but is for all the nations. And those that are of that religious establishment that could not receive God on his terms, but wanted God to, to come in their terms, they would be destroyed. And the gospel would come to the nations. Jesus is talking about himself. The son of the owner was sent. Surely he'll be treated differently. No, they kill him in order to try to place themselves in the air. They lose their logical minds. Right? Their truth, instead of receiving the truth of, hey, there is something that the owner needs from us, there is something that the owner deserves from us, they lose their ever-loving mind and they create their own truth that is no truth. Well, if I just kill enough of these folks, things will go different for me. They lose their minds. You see, truth today is still under attack. We are taught in the, by the society that truth is internal and is as, sub, is as subjective as we desire it to be. But what we understand from the teaching of the word of truth, the God of truth, the God who is the creator of truth, has created it as a construct in which to live our lives, is that according to Scripture, truth is anything but in us, because we are evil as the day is long. 
Truth is outside of us, and therefore it is fixed. What's amazing to me is if you want to pursue any truth that you want to, the world is on board with you. Whatever you want to pursue, however you want to pursue it. Listen, Israel didn't have a problem hearing all of the words from the false prophets. They didn't care. They thought it was great. Hey, this false prophet said that we'll win this battle. Hey, this false prophet says we're doing great. Hey, this, this priest or this king, this is, this is how we should do things. They had no problem with those people. There's one exception. When you begin to view things on God's terms, the world takes note. All of a sudden, the only illegitimate path is the path of truth. It's almost as if the enemy has focused his guns on truth so that people can live in darkness. This is a design. This is a design of the enemy. This is what God is is saying, right? And Jesus is coming. He's preaching truth. And they're going, who gave you this authority? And Jesus gives them a lesson in truth. Accepting God's eternal perspective typically requires the rejection of man's temporal perspective. It didn't fit in their cookie-cutter way that they wanted the Messiah to come and to rescue their people, Israel, and to make them prominent in the world again, to line their pockets with money and affluence. It didn't come that way, and because it didn't come on their terms, they rejected it. But if we are to follow the eternal prerogative of God, it means a death of our own kingdom, a death of ourself and a death of our pride. I would say what is also clear in this parable is the reality of the messengers. Those sent by the owner were persecuted. For those of us who would faithfully minister, would faithfully preach the gospel to a world absent of truth, will mean for us rejection. It will mean persecution. It will mean temporary banishment, right? Rejection from this world. The path of the cross is not a small tributary that just winds its way just parallel to the flow of the world. No, it's a reversal of tides. It is a complete change in direction, right? And this is what Jesus is telling them, right? Like if you're going to have this perspective, you're going to have to die to your own and they could not do it. And so they would reject Jesus and ultimately they would beat the son of the owner. They would kill the son of the owner. And in so doing, they didn't just lose their logical minds, they lost their spiritual souls. Refusing to accept God on his terms. Because our approval will never come from the world, so our approval must come from a source outside this world. Do we, if we live for the approval of man, we will not gain the approval of God. If we live for the approval of God, we will find ourselves at odds with the rhythms of this world. This is the way that God has created. This is part of what it means to live in this kingdom. 
Right? And so the first is truth. The trap of truth. Don't fall for the lie of whatever truth some person wants to concoct, concoct in, their, in, their, in their own body, in their own mind. Right? Don't fall for that. Jesus spoke directly to their heart. Jesus brought truth. John would say the word became truth. The, the truth became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Jesus became, as a son of God, the embodiment of the word of God, came and he dwelt among us. Secondly is treasure. Another trap that is laid for us is treasure. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's ironic to me that they are completely describing themselves in reverse. They are giving Jesus the credit for being the reverse of who they are. These people were totally swayed by opinion. They totally cared what people thought, and they totally didn't care if they had to deviate from God's word in order to bring themselves their own benefit. But they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Y'all, money today, like then, is still a charged topic. It is still an emotional topic conversation piece. There is no accident that they chose money to be the topic of conversation. Why? Because when we talk money, we start getting uncomfortable. Because money has a way of becoming God. Becoming the reason and the decision maker for our life. That dictates the terms of our obedience. That dictates the level of buy-in to the kingdom of God, right? It is quick to take God's place. And so he begins to talk in this charge of, hey, listen, there was no way that he could have a correct answer. There was no way. The Herodians, they were the inside man for Herod Antipas. They were... The snitches, they were the ones that if you said things that were anti-Roman, they'd go and tell on you and you'd get arrested. They were out for Rome. They loved Rome. They loved all that Rome stood for. And so they were partners and friends of Herod Antipas, the governor or tetriarch or king as he's called in scripture, right, of that region. Those were the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were someone completely different. And in fact, unless you were getting after Jesus, you couldn't have gotten these two groups in the same room together. Because the Pharisees were all about Jewish law. And in fact, they didn't recognize, as a Jew, they didn't recognize the power of a pagan king over them, right? That God was their king. They were God's people, Israel. But they came together to trap Jesus. If he says yes, pay taxes to Caesar. Immediately for the Pharisees, they had ammunition to delegitimize his standing with the Jews. He was acknowledging the lordship of another instead of God over, their, over uh, the Jewish people. 
This would have delegitimized him with the Jews. If he had said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, them bunch of snitches, they'd have ran off and told Herod Antipas what was going on, and Jesus would have been arrested on the spot. Either way, he is doomed. There's no right answer, right? Look what he says. Knowing their hypocrisy, we'll talk about that in a minute. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And then we know what Jesus said, but we weren't there in the original audience for our minds and our brains to explode and our faces to melt when he said this. But this is exactly what happened to them. In this audience, in this room, with this crowd, they marveled. That means their jaws hit the floor. Listen what he says. Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Here's the principle. This coin bears Caesar's inscription. It bears his handiwork. More than that, it bears his image. And because this thing bears the image of Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. Now, Jesus doesn't have to say anything else. But immediately, Genesis 1.27 is going off. The, the alarms are sounding in the heads of the Herodians and the Pharisees, right? Because they know the scripture that says that so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So the principle is because Caesar's handiwork and his image is borne out through this coin, they belong to him. But we are God's handiwork. We bear his image. And so the idea of what we do with our money is completely insignificant in light that God has not called you to give money. He has not called you to give time. He has not called you to give energy. He has not called you to give anything other than everything. That's what he's called you to give. The sum total of everything that you have been, that you are, and that you will become belongs to him. Why? Because you are a product of his handiwork and you bear his image. And the oxygen in the room left, right? That's exactly what Jesus did. What was he explaining to them? He was pointing to their treasure. Because you place such an emphasis on money and living in your cushy lifestyles, you've missed the fact that you bear God's image. And so there are things in your life that you refuse to give to him. You have settled for less than surrender because it's uncomfortable on your terms. See the irony. He calls them hypocrites. He, say, he doesn't call them that. He says, seeing their hypocrisy Right? What, where is their hypocrisy in this? Well, th think about this for a second. See the irony of Jewish hypocrisy in Christ's day. Although most Jews refuse to recognize the lordship of Caesar over them. 
They refused to recognize it. They still paid taxes to Caesar. In fact, they actually paid more than their taxes because they knew that those tax collectors were gouging them and they still paid it. They didn't like it, but they still paid it. They refused to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar over them, but they still gave Caesar his due. However, all Jews, all Jews recognized the lordship of God over their life. It's what it meant to be a Jewish person, a person of the Hebrew faith. You recognize the lordship of God in your life, yet they refused to give him his due. Oh, they'll give it to a pagan king. They might complain about it, but they'll give it to a pagan king. But though they are made in God's image, they refuse to surrender themselves. And we look at them and go, how dare they? But boy, we can adopt the same posture, don't we? Oh, there are things that we won't not do, right? And I'm not advocating that we don't do them. I'm advocating we pay taxes. I'm advocating we vote. I'm advocating we do all of our civic duties, right? It's important that we do that. We need to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. That's part of it. But boy, we don't need to stop there. We live in a day where in the church being an American is more important than being a Christian, being a Christ follower. Why is that? We value giving and rendering to Caesar what is Caesar over the eternal perspective that it takes to give God the things that are God's. We withhold. We hold back. And Jesus is pointing to their hypocrisy. Why? Because we don't understand treasure. What did he say about treasure? Well, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field that a man finds. And then in his joy, he sells all of his temporary junk. He sells it all. He does it joyfully, happily. He loves, he loves to do it. Why? Because what he's getting in return is greater. What he is giving up in the temporary is better in the long term. But we don't live this way. Because we don't understand treasure. And so we treasure things that don't matter to God, which leads us to a third and final thing. Trivia. Now, y'all have done trivia, right? Gone to a trivia night, usually with a taco present somewhere on your table. You've played and had a good time with that. Lindsay Lane East does it like quarterly. They do like, seriously, a taco trivia. So um, you're a member of Lindsay Lane, so you could actually go if you'd like. Um, but taco trivia, we've all done that. What's, what's the idea? Trivia is like random facts, right? Well, it actually comes from an understanding that those things are unconnected and really not good for anything. Right? That's the whole point of trivia. Trivia is random facts that, yes, they're truth, but it really doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, who cares about whatever dot, dot, dot is behind this thing that this guy is announcing as I'm eating my guacamole, right? These are unconnected, unapplicable to life facts. 
the Sadducees come up, ready to take their crack at Jesus. And they come with a debate that is completely trivial. Verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. By the way, if you were a Sadducee, that meant you don't believe in the resurrection. They're about to ask him a resurrection question. That's exactly what they're about to ask him. They don't believe in the resurrection. But they're asking him a question about the resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and, dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there are seven brothers. Now, you ever heard debates like this? You're like, no way, that, that could never happen, right? The hypotheticals that were posed sometimes. But what about the man who the, their mom births them on a cruise and then a storm comes and sweeps him away to a remote island where he's raised by wolves, having never heard the name of Jesus? Does this man go to heaven? You know, like, get real, people, get real, right? Usually this is posed by people that don't believe in it to begin with, right? So they're asking a question about resurrection. They don't believe in it to begin with. But they're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. Seven of them. Happens seven times. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. All I can say is this woman was a piece of work. right? She has killed seven men and then she died. Like Finally, completion. I have killed the complete number of the, human, of the male race. I'm out. Your male gender is, you know, like this woman must have been something. Now I can rest in peace, right? Seven men. So the question is, then who is she married to in heaven? For the seven had her as wife. <laughs> How many of you would say one of the primary reasons why you don't share your faith like you should is because you're afraid of a question that somebody's going to ask that you don't know the answer to? Happens, doesn't it? It happens to me as pastor. Right, like... The one who you think it's my job to know the answer? I think that from time to time. But Jesus didn't engage right here. Why? Why did he not engage? Because this is trivial. Who cares? This ain't going to happen. Who cares? Instead, he missed their mind, their intellect, and he spoke to their heart. You know what he tells them? You're all wrong. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know God's word, but yet you're going to ask me questions like you do. Have you ever been there? These people have all these questions and they'll chase you around in circles trying to get to some answer. The problem is they don't believe in the resurrection. The problem is they don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in truth on your terms. And so until you speak to their heart, you can't speak to their brain. What this tells us, what this shows us and illustrates perfectly to us is the futility of the mind without the context of the heart. It's why it requires faith to come to Jesus. 
Because we come to him on his terms. If he was big enough, if he was small enough to fit in our minds, he'd never be big enough to meet all of our needs. And so we come to him with faith like a child, humbly laying ourselves before him. God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but change me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but bring transformation. All I know is I can't do it on my own. And guess what happens? Once he speaks to our heart, once he transforms our heart, our mind follows. Our hands follow. Our feet follow. Our lips follow. Jesus speaks to the heart. This crazy sequence of what ifs, the question is impossible to answer. And so what we would do is say, in our minds, the enemy uses this ploy, right? Uses this trivial pursuit to go, well, I need to go back and learn all I can possibly learn about the Bible. I need to learn it all, and then I'll go share Christ. Well, guess what, y'all? That never happens. In fact... In fact, Scripture is clear that it'll never happen. We will never ascertain all knowledge. If we did, we wouldn't need God. So there is a point in which you are called to engage the lost regardless of your knowledge. I love what Johnny Hunt says. It's the best quote I've ever heard about this, about evangelism. And the fact is, every one of us in this room is educated beyond our level of obedience. You know how to speak to someone's heart. Do you know why I know that you know that you, that you know how to speak to someone's heart? Because if you have Christ in your life, he has changed your heart. So you can speak to someone else's heart by your, through your heart. That's how I know. He's changed me. And it doesn't make sense all the time, but it's clear to see a change in me. And you can argue a lot of things, but you can't argue a changed life. No. So what we do is we just never get around to sharing because we don't know all the answers. Can I just be real honest with you? I'm not telling you you shouldn't know answers. You should study. You should know. First uh, Peter talks about, right, that having a defense ready for anyone asked to the hope of the joy that's in us. Like, like we, we need that. But we certainly don't need it to the neglect of evangelism, to the neglect of preaching a gospel to a world that is in desperate need of it, than a world that is splitting hell wide open. We ain't got time for Bible study, right, to come to answers, to come to grips with all knowledge. We just need to trust God that he's going to speak on our behalf. And when you don't know the answer, say it. I don't know the answer. We'll study it together. What did Jesus do? I'm not engaging you in this level of intellect until you are willing to understand that I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Like, that's a deal breaker right there. You don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Right? Like That's a deal breaker right off the bat. And Jesus calls them Remember, right? You, you, don't, you don't know anything. You don't know the scriptures. They're not given in marriage. They're like the angels. The angels don't have husbands and wives. And we look at that and go, well, that's kind of a bummer. I like my wife. Like, I, I like someone cleaning up after me in my mansion in glory, right? Like, that sounds great. Like, 
to go behind me and shut all the drawers that apparently I don't shut at my house. Like, that sounds good. But we're just, we're little children. We don't, we don't understand that we don't need any other relationship when per- perfect relationship happens. And so Jesus checks all the boxes. And the old has passed away. And all things have been made new. And he tells them, right? They're not given to marriage. As for the dead being raised, you have read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These are all present tense things. What is he saying? He's not the God of the dead. He's not the, he, he wasn't, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. No, these are present tense. Why? He is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He engages their heart. Church, we will have opponents. We will have people that want to see us fail. And I'm not talking about just intellectual. We'll have people that want to see us fail testimonially. Yep. Yeah, he's acting like a hoity-toity church guy. But yeah, he was hiding all that sin. Right? We've heard that. We've heard that from people that have fallen. We'll be hated. But may we not fall into the traps of these worlds. You know how Jesus overcame? Jesus overcame through perfect community with the Father. You know how we overcome? It's not by what we run away from, it's by who we run to. If we will run to him, he will fight our battles. If we will give him, if we will surrender our life to him. Jesus lived undistracted by the treasures of this world. He lived undistracted by the trivialness of, of society. He, he lived solely to pursue the will of God for his life. And that is what he has called each of us to do today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? As we enter a time of invitation, I want to call you to respond. The beauty of Christ, we've talked about information, right? I mean, yeah, the Sadducees had a lot of information. What they lacked was transformation. Man, the Bible is an informative book. You read it every time, every time I read it, right? I, I love, my wife will tell me things that she's read in her quiet time. We hold each other accountable with the time that we spend with the Lord each day, and she'll tell me that I never, I've never read before that dot, 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 dot. The, the, God's word will inform you, and that's cool. But God's word is unique from every other work of literature is that it is not the work of man. And while it can inform you by nature, right? The Sadducees brought information. What God's word desires to do is to bring transformation, to change you. You have not experienced God's word until the Holy Spirit has transformed you by its words. For they are the word of God. It is truth. And right now, you have the opportunity to respond to it. You can reject it like the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. You can reject it, reject Christ. That's your prerogative. Or you can have enough faith to take him at his word. And today you can surrender your life to Christ.
Christ. If you're here and you don't have that relationship with him, I would encourage you to come. Come and see. Come and taste and see. Experience the goodness of God as he speaks directly, not to your mind, but to your heart. You know who you are. You know if the Holy Spirit is doing that in your heart right now. I'll just ask you to come. I'd love to help you. Love to get you hooked up with somebody that can, that can talk you through what it means to have this relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here and maybe there's other decisions that need to be made. Maybe you, like Chase in the first service, like Corbin there in this service, maybe you need to get your baptism in order. Take that first step of obedience and walking with him. Maybe you've been paralyzed for whatever reason by evangelical paralysis. I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. Fear of rejection, all of those things. But God has called you to speak to hearts with his gospel and let him bring transformation. And so maybe you need to come and rededicate your life. Maybe you just need to pray at this altar. Maybe you, for you, or somebody that God may be calling you to. Maybe God has placed a name in your mind and in your heart that you know God is leading you to share with. Maybe you need to come to this altar and you need to intercede for them. Maybe you need to join what God's doing here at Lindsay Lane North. Maybe you need to join our church. We would love to get you plugged in. Our church, for our church to be more effective because you're a part of it, and for you and your family to be more effective as a result of our partnership and accountability together. I just pray that you would respond today as the Spirit leads. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for what you've done for us. You have ministered to us through your Son, who has come, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death on the cross, and on the third day was raised gloriously from the dead. Father, I just pray for those that need to respond to that truth today. Respond in faith as you minister and draw them to their heart. Lord, I pray for other decisions that need to be made. May we just realign ourselves with where we need to be as we've seen ourselves in the mirror of your word today. Pray that we would realign where we need to bring adjustment. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time of response. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Whatever it is the Spirit leads you to do, leads you to move, maybe coming to this altar, maybe making your seat your altar, coming, finding me, talking about any decision that needs to be made, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Let Him have free reign in your life in this time.